this is Forrest. And this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured... Or, you know, trash. ...piece of cinema. And look, we know the news is hard, but films are so much fun. So we're going to use the latter to help you interpret the former, and we're going to be your guides on that little journey. That's right. So today is Christmas. Hooray! And we're talking about the filibuster. Which is the present everyone wants. Or really, really doesn't want. Or it's like you want a present, but then no one so much just won't let you have it. Or I was thinking the discussion of the filibuster is maybe the thing that people don't really want on Christmas, but you're getting it anyways. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas from your wife. Yay. So we're not only talking about the filibuster today, but we're talking about it in regards to the voting rights bill that's currently moving its way through the Senate. Originally, when we conceived of this episode, we were going to be talking about the Build Back Better plan. BBB. And how that was supposed to be passed by the end of the year in the Senate today, December 25th. Um, Chuck Schumer had originally created this deadline because he didn't want the child tax credit to lapse and Joe Manchin just fucked it all to hell. Yeah, that's uh, that seems to be their brand. Outsiders, these rapscallions who uh, decide that child poverty is good. Right. So instead of dealing with the Build Back Better plan and talking about how that was going to have to be passed via the budget reconciliation process, which we will get into because of the filibuster. Instead, we are actually drawing a much more direct route to the filibuster because that is what is going to need to be gotten rid of in order for anything else to happen that is not through budget reconciliation. And we're going to talk about why, what all of that means in just a little bit in today's so, episode. So wait a second, you're saying that the fact that Joe Manchin destroyed the Build Back Better plans, uh, possibilities of being passed, mm-hmm. bad for America. Yes. Great for this podcast. Great for our podcast. <laughs> Great for our first episode. Thanks, Joe Manchin. Thanks for making our first episode much less convoluted. It's a hit. By the way, <laughs> good good time to remind you to rate and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. We get five stars. Joe Manchin gets one star. <laughs> no stars if you can. No stars. So yeah, we are excited because... I am specifically excited personally about this this whole change, though, because I, I think that it makes more sense. I would much rather have a conversation about the filibuster and have it be tied to the Voting Rights Act than to have some giant kerfuffle at the end of the year for the Build Back Better plan, which guess what? We could pass without budget reconciliation if we just fix the filibuster. If we just fix the filibuster, we can do all of the things and Joe Manchin can have his way on most of them. And we don't have to wrap, we don't have to wrap the environment and child tax credits and healthcare, healthcare and all yeah. these other things into just one giant omnibus bill. Just to budget. reach the 50 vote threshold. Yeah. Just to reach, because we can only do one thing a year, we could actually have a functioning legislature again. Yeah. By the way, if you think that we're talking in tongues right now, it's possible that that is true. Just give us a second. We're going to explain all of this. Right. <laughs> this is the point of this podcast is to break it down. For right. You. So a small group of senators basically then has been in talks with Joe Manchin. A small group of Democratic senators have been talking to Joe Manchin to try to get him on board with changes to the filibuster. Those senators 
editors include Tim Kaine from such greatest hits as the 2016 uh, general presidential election. Yeah, v- VP candidate with Hillary Clinton. That That's worked right. out super well. That's right. And then John Tester of Montana and Angus King, who is an independent from Maine, but caucuses with the Dems. Also a fantastic name. John Tester? No, no. Angus. Angus King. <laughs> well. I'm your king. My name is Angus. Tim. Yeah, look, it sounds like a great, great cut of beef. I would definitely eat some Angus King. It does. Uh, you know, top round. It does sound like you would pay $25 for one steak That's of right. Angus King That's at right. the supermarket. You got it. So Tim, John, and Angus have been trying to talk to Joe Manchin and get him on board with changes to the filibuster. That's the original lineup of ACDC, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) And and again, I think that this is really great. They are supposedly making progress. Um, You know, Manchin has insisted that he wants this to be a bipartisan effort. Fuck that. I don't see how that's going to happen, but... Hopefully, Manchin can start to see that we will get nothing done until we get rid of the filibuster. They just that will ne- nothing will be bipartisan. There will be no bipartisan efforts because there is no good faith world, or there's no world in which the bi- the Republicans are making a good faith argument to have anything nice in this country. So, so here's the thing: like the you actually increase partisanship if you get rid of the filibuster, but that's a conversation for. Uh, 20 minutes from now when I'm talking about 20 minutes from now yeah Yeah. uh but but the other thing is like I think if you're Joe Manchin you just say like look I'm here on my houseboat I'm driving my Maserati I've been a senator for 20 plus years uh yeah man yeah I think kids should live in poverty wait does Maserati (laughs) make a houseboat no no I'm sorry there's two different (laughs) things he drives a Maserati to his houseboat gotcha it would be very cool if Maserati (laughs) had a houseboat I would enjoy that very much but no, he he is uh he he's a a noted uh person who lives on a yacht, uh and drives his Maserati to and from the, the capital. A Yachtserati. God damn it. <laughs> he is uh he's very concerned about people taking advantage of the government while he uses his position in government to extract funds from. You know what? Actually, I'm getting too deep into this. I don't want to get sued by anyone, so I'm going to go ahead and shut my mouth. Hey, but hey, let's let's just say he's not the he's he's not a great guy. Not do, a great guy. Do you think that Joe Manchin likes to have Yahtzee parties on his Yatserati? I'm going to cut that out. That's not going to end up in this episode. <laughs> it's I'm okay. Sorry. Indiana was moving. Anyways. Shoot. Yep. I think the the important point is uh, one of the things we're going to cut into in this episode is where people get their conception of the filibuster and why it's wrong. So can you tell us what the filibuster is and uh, maybe what people think it is? Compare compare the reality to the fiction. Sure. So, so at its heart, the filibuster is simply a tactic that is used by any opponent of a bill. They use it to prevent that bill from being passed. What people envision in their minds when we say filibuster is they think of Jimmy Stewart standing in black and white, talking and talking and talking until his legs give out and he's sweating profusely and he is speaking his truth from his heart in front of the Senate for hours on end. That's what most people think of. They think of it as being heroic, as being something that's noble, as as champion championing for the little guy and railing against the big machine. It's like a righteous cause. Right. It's yeah. it's, 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 it's it's righteous. It's a stand-in for like a righteous cause in, in D.C., right? And however, that is not what it is at all. It may have started somewhat that way, but 
what we're what we're really talking about is today you don't have to talk you don't have to speak in order to have a filibuster yeah. and in fact even when it was the case that you did have to speak for hours and hours and hours usually the cause that you were championing statistically speaking throughout history that cause was racism right and and, and i would argue like it was actually never the case that the filibuster was this like heroic and and uh, noble thing that someone did uh, almost never anyway it's just that if you're a writer and director in hollywood right. it is a thing that you can glom onto right like very quickly to say like this person is righteous and will not give up well what can we use as a device to convey that right. and the device they use to convey that is the, the standing and talking filibuster and this is why Aaron Sorkin loves the filibuster. Oh, boy. There's an entire West Wing episode about it. Not a fan. I liked that episode. It's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good fiction. How did, how, how did the filibuster start? Give let's, us the, the history. Let's get, yeah, let's go all the way back to how it started. It did not start in the Constitution. Nope. It is not in the Constitution. In fact, in the Constitution, what we have is that in order to pass a bill, you need 50% plus one of the legislatures legislators to vote in favor of a bill. And that is how a bill allegedly becomes a law. This was all the way up until 1806. So in 1806, the Senate decided to do a little bit of housekeeping. So 1806 is like basically 20 years after the Constitution was was ratified. Right, exactly. Ish, yeah. Exactly. Aaron Burr, was the vice president? Of course, he was. He had just murdered. Uh, he just murdered Hamilton. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. setting up our long history of advocating for murderers in the highest office of the land. He had just had a rap battle in a field in New Jersey and was <laughs> indicted by the Senate. Lin Manuel Miranda is so pissed about this. <laughs> but yeah. And in 1805, Aaron Burr looked at the rule book of the Senate. He was VP, so it meant that he was the president of the Senate at the time. And he said, guys, it is really just kind of messy and like just, there's too much stuff going on in this rule book. You should really clean it up. There's a lot of redundancies. This rule right here about needing to, um, this rule right here about needing to vote to end a debate is redundant. Why would you need to vote to end a debate people should just be allowed to debate as long as they want and then you know you'll just end your debates whenever you're ready to why should we put a limit on that so we should just you know what this rule doesn't spark joy so we should <laughs> just get rid of it yeah i i, I there was a a friend of mine who said aaron burr was very very dedicated to destroying the country <laughs> before it began at sort of every step along the way. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, should I murder this dude? Yeah, let's do that. Should I get rid of a rule that allows people to end discussion? Yeah, I should definitely do that. Like really, if there was a chance for him to be like, oh, would this make things worse? Yeah, here we go, let's do it. Right, and there is an entire song performed by Leslie Odom Jr. in, in Hamilton where Aaron Burr is worried about his legacy and he's worried about how he's going to be remembered in the future and what this, this murder of Hamilton is going to say about him. And really he should be worried about how he destroyed the country by causing the filibuster. Yeah, but I mean, I guess every time that there was a long debate that didn't seem to end, he was willing to wait for it. Oh no. I'm willing to- You don't have the rights to this. Oh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I, I just ruined the podcast. You don't have long. the rights to that. Leading up to 1805, it was the case that people would talk and then the senators would vote and they would end the debate 
of whatever bill that was happening, and then they would vote on that bill. And 50% plus one was all that you needed right. in order to make a law. That right. was how the founders of this country envisioned they figured it democracy out. working. I think they, they probably also had inclinations that this could be abused. And so, uh, you know, they they were like, if you look at the Federalist Papers, if you look at what Hamilton wrote, like he's actually very against the idea that a minority could mm-hmm. prevent any votes uh, from taking place on something that the majority approved of. The, the one thing that I would ask you is when was the first filibuster actually like implement like when, when did it take place? Who sure. did the first one? Sure. And you know what? Hamilton was not wrong, by the way. To to worry about that filibustering is something that has happened all the way back to the Roman Senate, right? This is not a new concept. But the first filibuster didn't actually happen until the 1830s, right? So they changed the rule in 1806 and it was really just theoretically possible until 1837 when it was first used by the Whigs to basically make sure that Andrew Jackson was censured for some probably racist nonsense. Well, yeah. So uh, as far as it seems, it was like Andrew Jackson was censured and they were going to expunge that censure, basically like override it. Yeah, his allies were. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to go ahead and, and filibuster so that you can't. Right. Uh, expunge this criticism, the censure of uh, Andrew Jackson. Right. So the first, so the first, uh, which is, is fine. Like it's, it's cool. I guess that Andrew Jackson got censured because he was a dick, but like, and did it really mean anything? I don't know, but it did seem to show people the way. Right. It did to fuck up a lot of stuff. Right. And so, and basically all of his allies, I'm assuming were the pro slavery senators from the South because they were the ones who from then on throughout the middle of the 18th of the 19th century, um, did use the filibuster for, for Southern quote states. Right. Yeah. And, and so, but the, the, even at that point, right. Mm -hmm. You, you described the Senate, in the early to mid 1800s, um, actually being focused on passing legislation. There's that sort of anachronistic George Washington quote about the saucer, the Senate being the saucer that cools the hot tea of the whatever, uh, which he never said. He never said. Uh, and and is actually was something that was invented by pro-slavery, pro-filibuster. Right, just like his wooden teeth and chopping down a cherry tree. Yeah, None of that stuff ever happened. It's all bullshit, uh, which is which we, we will get into in this uh, film review. But it seems to me that even though there was a filibuster possible, there was still business getting done in the Senate. Why was that the case? Right, and, and so... There was actually a lot of business getting done in the Senate. The Senate was the country was growing. Senators were popping up all over the place because new states new, all the time. New states were happening. New things needed to get done. Things needed to be built back better. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> and so, in order to get your bills passed, you had a very tight schedule. And if you had one lunatic standing on the floor just talking for days on end, that meant that your thing might not get heard. And so what a filibustering senator would be able to do then would be to gain leverage with the other senators by talking and say and and them saying i will give you whatever you want if you please just shut okay. up so that i can have my thing voted up it is it is negotiating with the toddler it's like the toddler will continue to scream and say fine you can have the fruit snacks right. but you have to be quiet 
Right. And they get their fruit snacks and they're quiet and you can go on with your day. And then it never happens ever again. <laughs> yeah. And the toddler does not learn that that is an effective route to get what they want. Right. So so if you can imagine, senators actually wanted things to happen all the way back then. And they were the reason that it worked was because they wanted their bills to to actually get passed. And 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 so this was the case all the way up until what we would consider the modern filibuster when something that we call cloture was introduced. Mm, so modern, so chic. And cloture is just, it comes from the French word for guillotine. It is a word that indicates um, an immediate end to a debate. And you end that debate by chopping off the head of your opponent. That's right. That's wrong. So instead of somebody in this, a senator being allowed to talk ad infinitum, the Senate was now allowed to vote on ending the debate. So again, what they were able to do is now say, I'm going to close this debate. And now that the debating part is done, we can, we can vote. vote. Right. And so it's basically a way to say we're moving on to the voting part because all the way up until this, they could just never vote in theory. And it was uh, the introduction of cloture was meant as a way to essentially um, was meant as a way to essentially fix this problem of so, the filibuster. So it sounds like what happened was Aaron Burr was like, OK, we don't need to actually vote to close debate mm -hmm. because people should be able to debate as long as they want. Mm -hmm. At that point, people were like, well, we don't actually need to debate as long as we want. We can just say whatever the fuck we want to say until you make concessions in your bill. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So now we're at a point where people start to make concessions in their bills. And then people are like, well, actually, we don't want to even do that. We don't want to make concessions in our bills. We just want to be able to have the ability to close the vote or to, clo to close debate through cloture, which is just a vote on closing debate. So it's like no longer do we have to like make these concessions for just closing debate based on a vote. Yes. Okay. No, I, I think that that's, I think that that's, that's right. So cloture was first introduced and first used during the World War One era. And it was originally a requirement of cloture that two thirds of senators who were just present and voting had to vote. So, this, so if all seven, if all hundred senators were there, it'd be sixty-seven. Right. We'll okay. pretend that in nineteen nineteen that there were a hundred senators. There were not a hundred senators in nineteen nineteen. Oh, okay. But but we'll pretend just for the sake of argument, just for the nice round number of a hundred. And this was actually really difficult to achieve. It failed eleven times between nineteen twenty-seven and nineteen sixty-two against the southern um, uh, against the southern Democrats who were blocking civil rights legislation for that entire time, basically. Of course they were. This was also when Mr. Smith went to Washington. Hey, he did. And, and in 1975, they reduced that two-thirds of president voting threshold for cloture to three-fifths of senators who were, quote, duly chosen and sworn. So it's no longer senators who are present in the building, but it is three-fifths of all senators who have been sworn in at the time. Which you would think would lead to like a movie with like some serious hijinks about like trying to get senators to like go out and feed their parking meter or something so that you could like, you know, get the right number of in people in there to make the vote at the right time. The completely different version of Dude, Where's My Car? That, that's not at all what it is. <laughs> Stay tuned to episode five where we cover Dude, Where's My Car? 
in relationship to news about cars and where they are. So through the 1970s, this was actually rarely used because, again, it was really difficult to to physically hold the floor and to speak. So and, you, you have an example of uh, what it took to hold the floor. So so one person held the floor for, I think, what, 24 hours? The Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond. Yes, Strom Thurmond was an example of somebody who held the floor for, I think it was something along the lines of 24 hours and um, set a record. Set a record. Longest talking field buster, yeah. Right. Um, for 24 hours and 18 minutes to oppose the Voting Rights Act of 1957, which eventually did pass anyways. Class act. So imagine trying so hard to set a record for being that racist against a yeah. bill that would just pass anyways. Like, right, like he fought so hard for his ideals and his, his ideals were like from Satan. Like Satan was like, hey, hey, bro, here's what you should do. You should go stand in the closet and pee in a bucket, but keep one foot on the Senate floor right. so you can still hold the filibuster. Right. And and that was and that was absolutely what senators would do is they would this for the talking filibuster, they would stand for however long their body could and come up with all sorts of different ways to get around their bodily functions while yeah. they obstructed legislation. Which by the way, if Satan was the one who told uh Strom Thurmond to do that, hilarious. Good good job, Satan. <laughs> that was uh, that's pretty funny. Right. And so that's what we call the talking filibuster. And and all the way up until the 70s, uh, that's what it was. You actually did have to stand and speak. And then in the 1970s, the rules were changed once again to create the silent filibuster. So the silent filibuster came out of the Senate trying to once again fix the rules to make them better, only to make them worse. They were tired of everything being held up by a single senator who wanted to filibuster. And so what they proposed doing was to create a two-track system that would allow for more than one piece of business um, motion to remain pending on the floor as unfinished business. And so essentially, they would, they would allow a senator to filibuster, air quotes, filibuster a bill by just turning in a piece of paper that says, I'm gonna filibuster this bill. And so that bill would be essentially filibustered, but then they could get along, get on with the rest of the things that they were conducting within the Senate. So so hold on, it's basically like, rather than yield the Senate floor to a person who was gonna talk for who maybe 24 hours, rather than do that, they said, okay, you can just write that down on a sheet of paper and send it up to the desk and we'll say, okay, we'll pretend that you filibustered. And then at the same time, they would just go ahead and pass like a bill that like funds the military or whatever nonsense they were getting into. Right. Okay, great. Exactly. Fantastic. And so what this, what they were hoping to do was to continue conducting day-to-day -day business. What they didn't realize is that is that this would actually essentially grind down the road, grind all business to a halt, because what this did was it made it easier for a minority group of senators, not a racial minority, but just a minority in number. Like literally 41 senators. <laughs> right. Um, to hold the rest of the senators hostage, to sustain a filibuster on any particular issue. And then because of that, the number of filibusters rapidly increased. And that eventually led to where we are now, where even though the constitution says 50% plus one, we have a de facto supermajority 
requiring 60 votes to pass any legislation because you need those 60 votes in order to reach cloture. Yeah. And what we'll talk about is like that the what Jesse is describing is through regular order. We're going to talk about some examples of like what's not regular order and that's going to be relevant to our current predicament. Uh but what is what it strikes me as being so strange is if you have a majority of senators that you don't have a majority of the country, well, at the same time, right now, we have 50 Democratic senators, 50 Republican senators. The Democratic senators represent 47 million more people than the Republican senators do, just based off of the populations of the states they represent. Sure. And we're saying that that majority, that 47 million people majority, shouldn't make a difference in the voting rights of the senators on the floor. They should actually have to have a supermajority of 60 votes in order to express the will of an expansive majority of people, which is crazy to me. It's wild. Right. Definitely not what the, the framers intended originally. We've tried to change the filibuster a couple times. Right. Uh, I'm sure it's it's only been for the best. I'm sure only good things have come out of it. <laughs> what, what are some of the changes that we've seen? That's right. So we've seen, again, we've seen a lot of changes happen to the filibuster and or happen to the rules regarding the filibuster. And every time we think that it's going to get better and then it actually ends up getting worse. So we have budget reconciliation that happened all the way in 1974. Which is what would have been used to pass the Build Back Better plan had they actually been able to do that. That's right. We have the War Powers Resolution, which was in 1973, which was giving the president or which talks about the president withdrawing troops overseas. Um, We have the Trade Promotion Authority from 1975, which talks about negotiating trade agreements. So these are things where it makes sense. It's international. We can't just wait for senators to sit on their hands or hem and haw and maybe never come to a conclusion. And we certainly can't let 41 senators who don't represent the majority of the country, like, use that as leverage over the rest of the country. Um, And then finally, judicial confirmations, which in 20... The whole thing. Right. which, (laughs) Which was what... The term nuclear option was originally coined in reference to and was used in 2013 by the Dems because Senate Minority Leader McConnell was refusing to work with anything that the Obama administration was trying to put forward, including filling the seats on the federal for federal judges. Yeah, yeah. So so in preparation for this podcast, yes, I checked out the book Kill Switch. Okay. By Adam Jettleson, Jettleson from the library because I am cheap and I will get things for free whenever I can. Sure. And I will admit I read the introduction mm-hmm. in advance of this podcast. I, you know, I got more to read. But here's a quote that I found interesting that connects the dots all the way up to Mitch McConnell s- deliberately speaking out to why he blocked these judicial nominations, right? Mm-hmm. So here's what he says in, in page five of the introduction. He says, From John Calhoun, the antebellum father of nullification who argued on the Senate floor that slavery was a, quote, positive good, Richard Russell, the post-World War II puppet master of the Senate who swore that, quote, any Southern white man worth a pinch of salt would give his all to maintain white supremacy. To Mitch McConnell, in our own time, who declared that, quote, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president, end quote. Southern senators invented the filibuster, strengthened it, and developed alternative histories to justify it. It's like, that. that's a pretty clear line 
from like the antebellum South mm-hmm. to Mitch McConnell using this as a political tool to hurt his opponents. Like it's, it's fair. It seems fairly straightforward. Right. And if you look back at the history of the filibuster, you see over and over again that it was used and it feels anecdotal that it was used for racist purposes, but there were actually a couple of political scientists who um, two political scientists, uh, Sarah Binder and Stephen Smith, who identified every bill between 1917 and 1994 that they believed failed purely because of the filibuster. And among these, half of them were civil rights bills. Yeah, hold up. So the filibuster was used in basically like a, a, a century of time. And half of the times it was used... Mm was to deny civil rights legislation. Right. Including, That's wild. Including that is so wild. Like anti-lynching bills. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Okay. All right. Yep. That sounds right. And this was one, this is one that I don't think we've even talked about yet. In 1959, the majority leader, Lyndon Johnson, restored the two-thirds threshold, anticipating that civil rights legislation was going to be happen, happening. And it was a bipartisan vote to restore that more difficult to achieve two-thirds threshold um, with 72 senators voting to make it harder to pass legislation. Jeez. And it was including the top three Democrats and three of the top four Republicans, and it was approved by Vice President Nixon. That's wild. Yeah, not great. As depressing as that is, it does lead us into Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So now I want to do a quick overview of what that movie was and the time that it was released. Mm-hmm. And then we can walk through the plot. It's it's something that we can spend a little time on and then we want to get to the analysis. So uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington came out in 1939, AFI listed it as number 26 on their top 100 films of all time. Audiences view this as being uh, an incredibly good film. It's number 197 on IMDb's top 250 uh, with an 8.1 rating on their site. It's also a 96% of Rotten Tomatoes with a 94% audience score. It's actually pretty rare that you see things that are that high on both critic scores and audience scores. Um, It won the Oscar for best writing for original story it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Lead Actor, uh, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. It actually was the first film to ever get nominated for two of the Best Supporting Actors, starring uh, Gene Arthur, who was first build, Jimmy Stewart, second build, Claude Rains, third build, and it also had Harry Carey and a few other people. And Gene Arthur was a woman. I mean, Gene Arthur's a, a, a wonderful actress, uh, had been nominated for uh, Best Actress before, um, and, and and literally was Frank Capra's uh, favorite actor, just of, of regardless of gender, just like right. worked with her regularly. In fact, designed the entire, like every stage that was designed in Mr. Smith Goes Washington was designed so that her left side would be facing camera. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch the movie, you'll see only her, the left side of her face. It's kind of wild, but it's that was her best side. And he was like, yo, I love you. I think you're a great actress. So we're going to design the sets that way. Frank Capra uh, was an immigrant from uh, Italy and had this sort of dream about what America was. At the time this movie came out, World War II was was uh, encroaching upon the minds of everyone, even though the United States was not yet close to being involved. It was very much on the minds of everyone in Europe, and therefore 
uh, Capra, you know, even has quotes about this. He says, you know, look, the uh, war is on the horizon and I'm making this movie about a Senate procedure or like voting and corruption and graft. It's like, it's a very strange thing for him to bring up. When the film was released, it gets great acclaim from audiences. It gets less acclaim from critics and even less so from politicians who, uh, you know, uh, the journalists in this film are not necessarily portrayed great. Sure. Uh, the politicians are portrayed worse. So its history, though, is is one of great acclaim. So it won the Oscar for Best Writing uh, for Original Story, and it was nominated for Best Picture. Um, it was nominated for Best Lead Actor for uh, Jimmy Stewart. Um, it actually was the first film to ever get two Best Supporting Actor nominations from the same film, both from Claude Rains and from Harry Carey. Harry Carey. So, so we went back and we watched it. That got... A nomination. I got a nomination. He yeah, was yeah. on screen for like five minutes. Yeah, it was it was not Harry Carey, the Will Ferrell impersonation on SNL. Hi, hi, Norm, Norm. Hey, if you were a hot dog, would you eat yourself? That did not get the nomination. No. Instead, it was a guy who just banged a gavel for most of the movie. Like that's he really all do, he did. Yeah, he didn't do anything. But but you know what? He did it well, and therefore he got nominated. Uh, it also got nominated for best uh, director, best screenplay as well as like art, sound, editing, and music. So widely acclaimed in its own time, regardless of what the media and the, the politicians thought about it. Right. Uh, and, and since then, it has been, it's, it's currently number 26 on AFI's top 100 films list. It's 197 on IMDb's top 250. It's got an 8.1 rating there. It's, it's 96 on Rotten Tomatoes with the Critic with a 94 audience score. Everyone loves this movie. So... What's the movie about? What is this movie about? Let's 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 dig into it, right? Okay. Opening scene. A man rushes to a phone, picks it up and says, uh, hey, you're never gonna believe this. A senator died. Which, by the way, would love more movies to start that way. Just <laughs> like senators dying. They literally could have just started uh, Avengers Endgame with like someone running to the phone and be like, hey everybody, Mitch McConnell died. And it would have gotten like as big of an applause round as like the big fight scene at the end of that movie. Right. Which is great. why I don't understand why why the last man got canceled. <laughs> there was an entire scene where all the men in Congress just melted. <laughs> there are like two women standing there just like, well, uh oh, spoilers? No. I guess? Eh, the last man, it spoils itself. Sure. Know. It is the premise of the entire series. Yeah. So look, all right, so so Senator dies, uh, it now falls onto the governor of the state, which is never named, to pick a successor. The government is in the pocket of a guy by the name of Jim Taylor. He runs the Taylor political machine, um, and he needs a senator who will vote yes on this bill, right? It's a big omnibus bill, a lot of spending that goes on, but he has a specific amendment in this bill, and that is to... Uh, build a dam on some place called Willet Creek. Uh, Jim Taylor has bought all the land around it and he can sell that to the government for profit. It's like a really straightforward grift, pretty easy to understand and explained in the first like four minutes of the movie. And if you aren't sure, there is a lot of subtext surrounding it that makes you, it makes it very clear that these are the bad guys, folks. They are literally in a in a dark room making this deal and, and telling the governor what to do about it. But when the governor sits down to eat with his family, his eight boy children, which seems like a lot for a dude who appears to be 85 years old, 
Uh, He's not 85, by the way. I looked it up. Okay. He is. He was 54 at the time. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Well, he certainly has uh, Wizard of Oz eyebrows, which to me says 85. Right. But I think I think that as we're going back and looking at all of these older films, we're just going to see that like, oh, that person looks 80. They were 50. That person looks that woman looks uh, 50. 35. That's right. Younger than me. This this 50 or 80 year old man, either way, gets mm-hmm. gets uh, cajoled by his children to actually appoint the head of their boy rangers. So you can't, they couldn't use the boy scouts, they use the boy rangers. And that person happens to be a guy by the name of Jefferson Smith. Now we are about 10 minutes into the movie at this point. And we have not seen Jefferson Smith at all. We know nothing about him. He is appointed and it turns out to be Jimmy Stewart. He stands up and he gives us this uh, all shucks, you know, speech. Oh, hey, hey, everybody. Hey, look, hey, look, I'm sorry. I, I don't, look, I can't promise that I'm going to be a great sinner, but boy, I, just, I hope I go there and I don't disappoint you. In case you were wondering, folks, we did not get James Stewart. Jimmy Stewart is dead still. To, to come to our studio today. I know you might be surprised by that. You know, I actually just took that clip directly from the audio of the film. And yeah, that was that was just a, a clip directly from the film. Hey, hey, everybody! I, actually, I went more George Bush. With that that one. was that was definitely <laughs> George Bush, but not wrong either. Jeff Smith heads to Washington, and that's the end of the movie. No, sorry, no, sorry. It, it, he goes to Washington. That is not the full crux of the film, uh, but he goes with the senior senator from the state, Senator Payne. Senator Payne is played by Claude Rains, who is a, a dynamite, dynamite performance in this movie. My second favorite performance. Sure. He is so good at playing a senator who is austere, yet can also play the corruption really well. So he is part of Taylor's machine, but he was also a good friend of uh, Jeff Smith's father. Right? You knew he was in the back room with Taylor, but you also see like, there, oh, he, he, there was a good part of him in the past. There was a time. Yeah. There was a time. Uh, so he arrives in DC and immediately, like uh, Jeff Smith arrives in DC, immediately goes AWOL, just like, into the wind. He sees the Capitol building and somehow like turns into Nightcrawler. But and like, just like bamps out of there. But not before, I, I thought this was so funny, not before he's he's like um, surrounded by a gaggle of, of young women yeah. at the train station. A bunch of hot women show up and just like ask him for money. And they all talk like Glinda the Good Witch. They do. That's right. That's, That's how right. all women, all women in the 1930s either talked Also like, 1939, I think Wizard of Oz was also 1939. Yeah, they all either spoke like Glenda the Good Witch or Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> That's the only two kind of women in film. That's right. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely correct. Jeff Smith spends about five hours, as we are told in the film, just wandering through the streets of American propaganda. The good news is we are introduced to Clarissa Saunders, who is his... Uh, I, I suppose, like, chief of staff. Like, she basically runs the Senate office that he's entering into. Uh, but she is the smartest person in the room. In every scene that she's right. in, even though, like, at the end they, they do her wrong, like, she right. is the smartest person in every room that she's in, in this entire film. Uh, so when, when you know, Jeff Smith finally arrives at his office, Senator Smith now, uh, she thinks he is this yokel, this backwoods country boy who doesn't know anything about anything that's going on. She's the quintessential woman in in film who, if if society were different, yes. she is the most competent person would be running everything if she weren't a dame. If society were different, she would be the lead character of this film. Right. Like, she's the only one who changes in this film. Right. She's the only uh, one who changes. She is the only one who has knowledge or... Do anything... Yeah. Yeah, like anything mildly different at the end of the film than she did at the beginning. She is uh, annoyed with the fact that she has this new senator to look after, basically babysit 
And so when the press asks her for access, she grants it for a little bit of scratch on the side. The press then goes on to write, <laughs> basically they're saying he's a yokel who can't be trusted, who has a bunch of stupid ideas, all of which proves to actually be true. Uh, and then they say that he is the kind of person who shouldn't be a senator, to which he responds by going on and just a punching spree. Yes. Literally just punching every reporter in the face for the next five <laughs> minutes of it, the movie. It, it felt like a metaphorical punch in the face to all of a sudden just have this scene come out of nowhere. You saw this scene happening and you were like, oh, well, this is a, this is a dream sequence, right? I, <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was a dream. I thought that it was going to be like... And they, you know, he's going to go and talk to the reporters. And it's like, no, he was actually just punching them in the middle of the street. He actually just rolled through the streets, punching reporters for five minutes, showed up to like their, their press room and got like held down. And he was like, hey, hey, why don't you just tell the truth? Hey, why don't you tell the truth, man? And they're like, uh, hey, buddy, we are the press. We are not voted into office. We tell the truth more than y'all do. Like you politicians lie through your teeth every day we're the only ones who are uh not accountable to trying to get reelected by voters so we can tell the truth yeah which is not entirely false the the big reason they did this right the big reason that was brought up into the plot was because he wanted to put out his idea for a boys camp sure and this is where we see the initial conflict arise so he wants a boys camp which is basically 200 acres of you know, you bring your boys out, they get to sleep in the woods with Jeff Smith uh, at nighttime, unaccompanied by their parents. Sounds great. I'm sure it's everybody loves this. Nefarious like that. I'm just saying, I don't know. This guy, he's got a lot of, you know, I'm suspicious. Point is. He's a genuinely, like, nice guy who wants to bring these kids out into nature. Michael Jackson was genuinely a nice guy who sang a lot of great songs. Anyway, the, the overall idea for this boys camp located in his state seemed terrible. Yes, it, not nefarious, but also just not a great idea. So here's here's the breakdown. He says that the government should loan them money. First of all, he says, hey, look, the government, hey, we spend too, money all, too much money all over the place. So we're, we're always uh, throwing money around where we don't need it. Well, guess what, man? That's what the government does. The government spend, it can print money. It's the only institute, is a monopoly. Therefore, if you want to spend money, if you want to appropriate money, it comes through federal spending. You are a senator. You should know that about your job. Secondly... The way that he wants to get around this is he wants the government to loan the money, which the government does occasionally, uh, to this particular camp facility, and the money will be paid back, not by the parents. He wants the kids to pay that money back. It is 1939. The United States has just come out of a Great Depression where adults could not find jobs. Absolute garbage. I think that, I think that sort of to your point of the time, though, it was not uncommon for children to have side gigs, side hustles to bring in a little bit of extra dough for like their families. It was not a time where money was just like free flowing. And in fact, if money was free flowing, it did come from the federal government. FDR was president at this time and enacted the New Deal in order to hire people into federal government jobs to provide them with the liquidity they needed to survive at that time. Right. So it's like, the idea that you would put into the script at this point, the federal government is just throwing money away, is absolutely insane. Anywho, <laughs> in this point, uh, there's a time where Saunders sits him down and says, okay, we're going to do the schoolhouse rock version of how a bill becomes a law. Right, which is actually a very good exposition 
as a scene and and does a really good job of of acknowledging that the people watching this film don't just have Wikipedia or a working knowledge because of Twitter. So this is their civics lesson essentially in this scene right here. And in fact, it's incredibly compelling because Saunders presents it both factually and also with a bit of cynicism. And so it's like, she's saying like, oh, these are the things that are going to hold you up along the way. This is why the process is so slow. Like she's actually being genuine about what is presented, um, you know, the hurdles. At, at, the hurdles that are presented. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because he wants to build it at Willet Creek, when he introduces it to the bill, or he introduces the bill on the floor, this is where his buddy, Senator Payne, flips on him. The big omnibus spending bill is ready to go to the floor. You know, Jeff Smith has been presented with the idea that, like, hey, this is actually full of corruption. So he's going to expose it, right? He's going to stand up in the Senate and expose it. When he does that, uh, Senator Payne stands up and asks him to yield his time. And like a big old doofus, right. he just says, oh, sure, I'll yield my time. I don't have anything important to say. Right. And he, at this point, you know, he looks over at Senator Payne and he has stated previously in the film that he thinks, that he's, a good person. He thinks he's a good person and that his father knew him and that. You know, he thinks that he is a stand-up guy. So when he yields the floor, there Jimmy Stewart does a good job of of having this look on his face, like, well, of course I would defer to you. Yeah, I will act as a gentleman. You yeah. would only want to help me out. Turns out he doesn't. He calls for the expulsion of Jefferson Smith from the Senate and then leads into basically what is a uh, show trial where they... They get behind a committee. Uh, the Taylor machine sort of falsifies documentation of witnesses in order to make it seem like Smith is um, pursuing the same kind of graft that they're actually in on, right? So they say, like, the day after Smith was appointed to the Senate, he bought all this land that's actually still held by Jim Taylor. They falsify these documents. And then uh, given the opportunity to defend himself, Jeff Smith walks out. The, the one thing about this part is it actually doesn't really make much sense. If Jefferson Smith purchased the land around that creek and the bill with the dam went through, they'd still have to buy the land from him, right? If he owned it, they'd still have to buy that land, even if he didn't propose the boys' camp. There was no reason for him to go out there and propose this, uh, like, boys' camp if he just wanted to make money from his position as an appointed senator. He could have just held onto the land, sold it to the government for the dam, and made some pocket change if that were what he were doing, which is not it. So it's like the way that they framed him doesn't actually make a ton of sense in right. terms of the, the narrative of the film. And I think that they're just trying to like, it, it's kind of whipping up the mob. And that's exactly right. It's like people don't think about things very deeply. And so it's like, if we could just make it seem scandalous, then it will be scandalous. Right. Hashtag Hillary Clinton emails. But her emails. That's but right. There it is. There. Did you forget already? I did. I, I have act- actively driven it out of my mind. And so he he bounces and, and walks away and he walks to the Lincoln Memorial, which is a recurrent theme in the film. Uh, Saunders finds him there and tells him, like, look, man, Lincoln went through the harder, you know, trials than you. And she's like, I have an idea. Once again, proving that Saunders is the goat. She's the only one who knows what's actually going on right. in this world. She basically invents the filibuster. <laughs> I mean, she basically, she, yeah. Um, Out of whole cloth. Yeah, and actually, I think this is really interesting because we're going to go into the final act of the film which is really the only thing people remember from this film. Right. Like, And so leading into that, I want to cut a little bit of audio from the film where a journalist, uh, who sounds like he's from Ireland, is describing what the filibuster is. This is H.B. Coltonborn speaking. Half of official Washington is here to see democracy's finest show of filibuster. The right to talk your head off. 
the American privilege of free speech in its most dramatic form. The least man in that chamber, once he gets and holds that floor by the rules, can hold it and talk as long as he can stand on his feet, providing always, first, that he does not sit down, second, that he does not leave the chamber or stop talking. The galleries are packed. In the diplomatic gallery are the envoys of two dictator powers. They have come here to see what they can't see at home, democracy in action. So now, here we are in the in the Senate chambers. Senator Smith catches the floor and he holds it and he will not will not yield to any other senator except for like occasionally like a point of question or point of order. The goal of this is not to like actually stop the legislation from being passed because as as Jesse talked about in the history of the filibuster, it actually does, you can hold the floor for 24 hours and still the bill gets passed, right? Like you, eventually you will stop talking. <laughs> So right. the goal was for him to do this for long enough to get public opinion back in his state on his side and then, you know, do something with that, which is never fully explained, but that's fine. Um, by the way, our, our son is in here just cooing up a storm. So apologies. So while Smith is on the floor trying to capture public sentiment, the Taylor machine is on the ground in the state blocking this from coming through in any kind of like public opinion, right? So he's basically acting like the Murdoch family or the Mercer family in, in modern day politics, where it's like, he's just controlling the message. So no matter what good comes from anything Smith says, it's getting subverted or changed in the eyes of the people who read the news from what they see in the paper. Saunders comes up with the basically saving grace of, of Jefferson Smith's you know actions here which is he, as a Boy Scout leader, or boy, sorry, excuse me, Boy Ranger leader. Can't say Boy Scout. Can't say Boy Scout. Uh, as a Boy Ranger leader, had started a little four-page paper that comes out like every once in a while. But he has access to a printing press. He has access to, to paper. And so Saunders calls him up. And the name of the paper. Boy's Life. Boy's Stuff. Boy Stuff. Just some just some old boy stuff, like yeah. Senate, Senate filibusters. What are you, you know, talking about? Boy Stuff. Boy Stuff. This leads to absolute chaos on the ground back in Smith's state, right? So in the course of 24 hours that he is speaking on the Senate floor, all of these people have uh, rallies and they have signs and posters printed up and the boy rangers are getting punched in the face by random people and then hit with their cars. Like it's, it's run off the road. It's just, it's, it's an amazing amount of chaos that occurs in like 45 seconds of this movie that is just like never really explained or like gotten into. They're just like, Oh yeah, no, but uh, we, we murdered some boy rangers. Anyway, moving on back to the Capitol. And then finally, Senator Payne brings in what he calls correspondence from the constituents of the state. Now, this could obviously be falsified. It could obviously be edited to like make sure that it's only anti-Jeff Smith. At first, I was wondering how they could have gotten letters this quickly, but it's just like bins and bins filled with telegraph. And if you ever see like the picture, the image that's most associated with this film, it comes from the third act. It comes from this scene. It is him picking up papers out of this bin of like correspondence telling him to stop talking and he's like looking distraught with his hair all disheveled and, and like glancing out. So it's like, this is the iconic moment of the film is like his lowest point, right? He's fought this hard. He's spoken for, I think it was 23 hours and 17 minutes at this point, And is just like exhausted. So the climax of the film is he continues to plead until he passes out on the floor of the Senate. Uh, you, you said badly? 
he does not do a good job of passing out. <laughs> He just, he just, there's just overacting. It's sort of similar to when he stands up and he's, and he's reading his bill for the first time and he's like jittering, shake, jittering and shaking the pages and, and trying to show that he's nervous. It just, it's just overacting. Yeah. That's I think it's fine. also like, it's, it's also like tall man falling. Like if you're really tall and you try and fall down, you're like, yeah, that's a long way. I'm scared. <laughs> it's going to hurt a lot more if you fall from six feet than if you fall from four like, feet. Like five and five foot, you know, eight or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That should end his filibuster. He no longer holds the floor. But at that exact moment, Senator Payne has somehow <laughs> brought a firearm into the Senate. They didn't have metal detectors just, back just, then. Just has a gun, decides to shoot himself, is restrained by other senators, dragged onto the Senate floor, and starts screaming in confession, it's not him, it's me, I'm the one, blah, blah, blah. And this is, and this is where the film just sort of jumps the shark into absolutely an unbelievable territory of a senator suddenly finding a conscience. The key conceit of this movie is that, you know, a single good man can make a difference if he stands up to corruption and graft. But that's actually, like, only true in, like, the broadest terms in this film. What actually happens is, like, if not for an attempted suicide by the film's most, you know, present antagonist, if it weren't for his suicide, Smith would have passed out, lost the floor, and been expelled from the Senate and disgraced, even in this ridiculously constructed scenario, right? Where he is in position to use the filibuster to a, a, you know, stop minor local graft. Like it was not like civil rights. He wasn't like standing up against black people's right to vote. He, he was just standing- didn't want a dam to be built on his river. He's saying even in this ridiculously constructed scenario, the filibuster still did not work to affect change. The only thing that worked to affect change was actually convincing a person that they were wrong and had been subject to like party politics or machine politics. The talking filibuster. And it was the talking filibuster, not the silent filibuster. There was actually a, an alternate ending that it was originally filmed. And it was where uh, Jefferson Smith goes back to his state, has a big parade, everybody's celebrating him. He smashes the, the Taylor machine, breaks it all to pieces and says, hey, Jim Taylor, you're not going to be doing business here anymore. The reason they took that out is because audiences saw it and said, yeah, that would never happen. <laughs> like, audiences were still cynical enough to be still... like, oh, the, the actual full happy ending? No, that would never happen. Like, maybe he passes out on the Senate floor and one guy is stopped from committing suicide. That's as far as we can go. That's as far as we can go on this journey. We can believe that a senator would take a gun onto the floor and try to commit suicide and maybe grow a conscience. Yeah. But we could not believe that corruption would be stopped by a single man. Yeah. And so maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I might be being too harsh. Uh, what do you think about the shitty film? <laughs> I just, I, you know, it, you have to judge it in its time, and that's fine. The, the acting was whatever. I mean, um, Jean... Jean Arthur. Arthur was, Shout out, she's great. She was great, with the exception of at the very end, where they just turned her into a hysterically oh. crying woman stereotype. Yeah, when he passes out on the floor and she has to, like, fall weeping into the gallery of the Senate, it's just, like, so disgusting. <laughs> Right. So with the exception of that, and that's not her fault. No, no. With the exception of that, she was fantastic. You know what? In my mind, it was like, I was thinking it was To Kill a Mockingbird, but the (laughs) one scene of Jimmy Stewart standing on the floor was like, you know, 30% of the movie. Yep. And, And for some reason, that was... That was what I was thinking. It was like more like Atticus Finch, and it was like a very measured man who 
understood the world and the way things were and not this idealistic white adult yeah. who's coming to Washington. Yeah. And so when I actually watched it, I was just not prepared yeah. for how dumb, naive, <laughs> dumb. ill-informed dumb. this person was. He's so dumb. Um, I just was not, I was not ready for that. And, and again, some of the acting was just like mm, yeah. overdone, but it's the time and that's, Fine. Yeah. And think about think about films where you've seen this kind of performance before. A lot of them have actually like like aped sort of the Jimmy Stewart uh perspective, right? Where it's like you have one person making a case to a quiet room, and over the course of hours, days, whatever it is, they get their attention, right? So you could say that's sort of the same thing that happens in like a time to kill. Matthew McConaughey with that jury that's you know sort of stacked against him. Mm-hmm. And he gets to that, you know, culmination of that. Uh, speech that's that's very powerful and affecting in the film like there is a importance to the words in though in that in like a time to kill there's an importance to the words in a lot of the aaron sorkin stuff you recognized Mm -hmm. earlier like they actually are saying things that mean something the biggest problem with jimmy stewart's character in this film is that he's just saying dumb shit the whole time so he goes to make this bill about the boys camp and he starts talking about the Capitol, but he's like, hey, hey, you know what this bill needs in it? Right, he's that, right there, the Capitol Dome. Yeah, it needs a, it needs a Capitol Dome. It needs, people need to, to see that in their bills. They need to see, you know, every, everything that, that, that this America stands for, all of our, 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 our ideals and everything needs to be in this bill right here. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. And I feel like Saunders was so good at like just putting the kibosh on that until they made her this love interest. As I was watching this film, I just, I had the thought, and maybe it's because it's Christmas time, that that Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is actually just the the DC version of Elf. <laughs> and it's, and Mr. Smith going to Washington is just Will Ferrell going to New York. So Mr. Smith is uh, Will Ferrell. That's right. Gene Arthur is James Caan? Or, or she's Zoe Deschanel? She's Zoe, she's Zoe she's Deschanel. Zoe, okay, Zoe Deschanel right. is the cynical, the cynical person who's been through it all. Right on my and own. then she finally at the end is the one who has the change of heart and falls in love with the elf. I don't so know. so Claude Rains is, is Jimmy Kahn. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yes. That's right. But he he is this like wide-eyed person who comes to this new land and realizes that that everyone just sits on a throne of lies. Yeah, throne of lies. This is why this movie is elf. <laughs> so Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is just elf for any kid listening to this studying for a test. <laughs> Saunders is like should be the protagonist of this film. And here's why. Saunders starts out jaded and uh, cynical. She mm-hmm. sa- she has a line. Man, Saunders has the best lines in this movie. She has a line that says, when I got to Washington, my eyes were like crystal blue or clear blue. And now my eyes are dollar sign green. Love that line. That is such a good line. And it's like, okay, all right. So she is the only one in this film who changes from that level of cynicism to then adopting some of that idealism that, you know, Mr. Smith brought to Washington with her knowledge of the rules. So she is the, she's the one who tells him about the filibuster. She's the one who plans out how to work it. She actually gives him a rule book for the Senate and asks him to read rules about when he has to, you know, yield the floor and all that kind of stuff. So she's the one who puts this plan in motion. She guides him along the plan, tells him what to read, like supports him the whole way. And is like, 
that level of change in character arc is typically reserved for the protagonist because Jimmy Stewart doesn't change at all in this movie. Like he is the same uh, goofy, like sort of uh, numbskull at the beginning as he is at the end. He just happens to be able to talk for a long time at the she, end of the movie. She is the Cameron to his Ferris Bueller. Closing that out, I just want to say like, shout out Gina Arthur. She killed it. Great role. Uh, wish it had been focused on her. Um, and again, if society were different. Yeah, that's right. The way that this film uses patriotism is it uses these images and these montages of American iconography, the Washington Monument, the Capitol Dome, the White House, all this stuff. But it, indi- it, it like all of those things indicate that there's like an Amer- a history of American ideals and idealism that goes from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln. And they actually literally traverse in the film from the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial. And they, they, they claim that in the stylized way that they show these things, that they are right and that they are true. And that these politicians in the film are somehow in violation of that legacy. Like the people who are acting in this film are corrupt senators acting on grift and personal self-interest. And while I don't want to shoot down idealism like too much, I really think that it's important that we have ideals that we strive for. Like the saccharine patriotism that glosses over so much of the founding of this country is really hard to swallow. I think it's really hard to swallow for us watching this right now. Right. It was it was hard to swallow because at the same time as you have Jimmy Stewart standing at the at the Lincoln Memorial looking up and talking about how this country is great and for, for every man, um, you still have you still have Gene Arthur who can't hold office. Can't hold office. And you have at this at the time the civil rights movement is happening is is happening in, in this moment yeah. and you still have people who effectively cannot vote yeah and we're still like at this time in 1939 we're in the middle of the great migration where black people are fleeing the south in record numbers to move to the north in escape of jim crow and the filibuster is still being used to advocate for jim crow laws in the south like the filibuster is doing exactly the opposite in real life of what the character Jefferson Smith is looking to do in this movie. It's so, it seems like this, is, this movie is taken out of its place in time and put into a different version of America. Right. But I mean, it's, it's, it is stuck in the time that it was made and, and where everybody just sort of assumed that the, like the, the people in power are just going to be white men, right? Yeah, and and so that's all the G. That was the that was the hardest thing for me to watch when I was watching it. Is just the entire thing is just white guys. Even the children are little white children, yeah. little white boys, and yeah. like that's all that you see. You see there are maybe three black people in the entire film. There are four women. Three of them talk like Glenda the Good Witch, and then one of the only other one is reduced to a hysterical mess by the end. And then the the black people, you know, they're they're there are three, there are three instances, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Jimmy Stewart arrives at the train station in Washington D.C. with everybody else, and there are I think four uh, porters. They're who just are black in the men. background. They're just in the background carrying they, bags. They use them for like a joke about, uh, hey, can you hold these pigeons? Because for some reason Jimmy Stewart brought pigeons to D.C. But yeah, so there there are uh, I think four black men in that uh, scene. There is an older black man with uh, salt and pepper hair. 
at the Lincoln Memorial when Jimmy Stewart first goes but there. But it's such a fleeting moment that and, you almost, if you blink, you miss it. And yeah. and, and then the, the final one was in the end of the, towards the end of the film, there was a young black boy who was in the printing press for the Boy Rangers newspaper. But that was it. But that was, that was, was it. it. And I think that the big thing that we're going to have to do as we're looking at older films is to sort of separate, right, the the reality of the time there were just only white men in the senate and i don't think he thought about it i think he i think he literally thought i'm sure that he by, didn't think about i it. think he thought by giving uh that that man at the lincoln memorial a, a moment in this in the scene he was like i'm doing my part i feel like capra was probably very much like oh look I, i'm speaking to the the morality of what lincoln said in the emancipation proclamation right but it, i mean that carries through all the way through all the way through the 90s with the West Wing. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. Where you have the one, the, similarly, the only women are hysterical most of the time, um, portrayed as hysterical. And then the 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 only black man that's a recurring character is Charlie, who's, who's the body man for President Bartlett. Yeah. And like, that's the same dynamic that you yeah. have 65 years later. Yeah. Shout out Dooley Hill. Please come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. He's a great actor. I love I lo- every role he's been in. He has added both uh, humor and gravitas. The That's not the great. thing that I'm laughing at. I, I yeah no come on the podcast. It's great. No, we'd look, love to have you. Yeah, we we're gonna have guests. We're gonna do guests. He's gonna be one of them. Sure. I'm putting in the world. Uh, Is that a Dulé Hill you'd like to die on? Nope. Uh, please don't say that. He's not coming on now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel that this movie has captured so much idealism that it is impossible to look at it now with sort of clear eyes and say that it is good. <laughs> like, you know, I, I just, I, it, it doesn't do it for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it just, it depends on what you're looking for out of a film. I think it is a good for its time film. It is a good film to point to and, and say here is a middle school education on uh, the filibuster or how bills are made, possibly. I don't even think that. I, I think it's a bad education. I think it's terrible for understanding what the filibuster is, as you described. Like, or a this jumping is, off point. This is where people get their idea yeah. of what the filibuster is. There's no other movie that's ever done the filibuster uh, for obvious reasons. It's an esoteric, like nonsensical you know, piece of our American political system. Uh, but like, this is the movie that used it. And so this is the thing that everyone imagines. They get Jimmy Stewart standing up, making an impassioned case. They think that's what the filibuster is. This is where Americans get their idea for what the filibuster is. And it's not this, it hasn't been this for a long time. And the filibuster is actually incredibly damaging. And we don't think of it that way because of the propaganda put forward in this film. So the one thing we'll close out on is like, I, I think that at the time, what was really interesting about this film is that uh, it was perceived by a lot of politicians as being anti-democratic, which is strange, but, you know, there were several people who indicated that they didn't want it to be exported to other parts of the world, especially Europe, where fascism was on the rise. And so one of the things that that happened was U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, a guy by the name of Joseph P. Kennedy, not that Joseph Kennedy, he sent Capra a telegram basically saying, uh, and this is the quote, I have a high regard for Mr. Capra. But his fine work makes the indictment of our government all the more damning to foreign audiences. I feel that to show this film in foreign countries will do inestimable harm to American prestige all over the world. Pictures from the United States are the greatest influence on foreign public opinion of the American mode of life. 
The times are precarious. The future is dark at best. We must be more careful. So Kennedy says that they refuse to halt distribution to Europe. And what happens is for the uh, for several theaters in Paris, before they fall to Nazi occupation in 1939, play this film. It was reported that one film played this, or one theater played this film for 30 days straight. And it showed the idealism that was necessary to continue the American the, the democratic experience, basically. And so I, I have a hard time poo-pooing the idealism behind this film. Uh, I just wish that it had not been so rooted in iconography and like hiography of the American founders. We need a reboot, is what you're saying. I'm saying someone needs to reboot Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. In fact, a few people have. So the <laughs> film called Billy Jack Goes to Washington. There are a couple of ones, but uh, you know, no, I, I think, look, let's get Aaron Sorkin on the phone. Oh God. <laughs> let's get, uh, you know, I, we'll get a, a cool director, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith Goes to Washington. We'll, we'll do it. We'll make it up. Smoochie booties. Oh God. <laughs> I would, I would, I would, see that movie in theaters, unfortunately. Uh, I I would absolutely love that. So that's it for our first episode. Uh, Please remember to rate us on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, review us on iTunes, and look, don't be an asshole. Like, five stars, please. Let, let's let's keep it up. We're trying to be big here. Five stars, even if you don't mean it. Even if you don't like us, if you're taking the time to rate it, make it five stars. You made it all the way to the end of this podcast. If you don't give us a rating, what are you doing yeah. with your life? If you, if you are going to take your time to tell us how bad we are, we don't want to hear it. We have children for that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye.